Good evening. You are listening to WMUA 91.1 in Amherst. Welcome to Undercurrents. My name is Jenny. I'll be with you for the next half hour. My guest in our virtual studio today is Ashik Sadiq, who's the research analyst with the National Priorities Project, which is also part of the Institute for Policy Studies. So that's quite a mouthful, which I think I managed to get through. Um, Ashik, why don't you start by just telling listeners what the National Priorities Project is and what it means to be associated with the Institute for Policy Studies. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so National Priorities Project is an organization that's been around for about 30 years uh, since the 80s um, and started um, as an anti-militarist organization um, that was uh, intended to just make the federal budget more legible to normal people. Just um, so we do research on the federal budget and focusing specifically on military spending and how much there is of it uh, versus anything else that is socially useful. Um, so uh, the reason it started was because um, the federal budget processes were are pretty opaque um, to most people, and and that's intentional. Um, in in politics, there there are all sorts of uh, you know received notions about uh, why we can't pay for nice things or certain things are too expensive. But then somehow there's always more money to go to war, um, or you know expand the military um, in ways that. Um, you know, don't even have to be justified uh, in terms of any kind of social purpose, or, or if they are, um, you know, the, there's not much room to challenge them. So that was the case during the Cold War uh, in the 80s. It's continued to be the case since then. Um, so NPP has um, helped uh, break down the federal budget every year and um, uh, just make those dynamics clear uh, to, to, to work with movement organizations, pro progressive organizations. Um, to help them make the case for why uh, other things should be prioritized. And um, a few years ago, uh, NPP joined the Institute for Policy Studies, which is a longstanding uh, progressive think tank um, that um, also started, uh, I, I think, um, in the 60s. Um, it, it was founded by a bunch of people who had worked with the Kennedy administration who were dissatisfied with the push toward the war in Vietnam. Um, so they quit and um, started this organization. And it, it was one of the first think tanks at the time. Um, and since then, in the, in the decades since, there's been a huge flourishing of think tanks, many of them conservative, uh, funded by lots of powerful interests um, that kind of followed that model, but for decidedly not progressive purposes. So IPS has been in DC for a while, um, kind of, uh, you know, in some ways working on the margins of mainstream politics, but pretty consistently working with uh, progressive politicians and movement organizations, labor unions, um, to help uh, develop progressive policy. And as research analyst, what's your particular job? Yeah, so uh, with NPP, uh, there are a few recurring analyses we do every year. So every year, uh, the president puts out a, a budget request, uh, the president's budget, of what they want to see funded in the federal budget in the next year. Uh, and we, we do an analysis of that as soon as it comes out um, this year. So the Biden administration is now in its second month. Uh, we're expecting a budget to be a budget request to be released um, by the end of this month, by the end of March, or um, in detail as late as, as April or May. So we'll do, a, a, basically it's a giant spreadsheet or a series of spreadsheets that's just put out that has line items for every single thing in the federal budget. And it's it's pretty hard to read. Um, you know, uh, there there are a few PDF summaries that are put out that lay out 
what's in it. So that's what reporters and other people might see. Um, but it takes a while to sort through it and, and break down what's actually in it. And sometimes, you know, the president and uh, the administration in office might not communicate what's in it in ways that, uh, you know, actually correspond to what's in it. So during the Trump administration, definitely there were all sorts of ways things were spun um, that had to be unpacked. Um, so we do an analysis of that to break down what's in that spreadsheet uh, in different categories. Uh, and then um, for the next few months, Congress debates what the budget should actually be and goes through the whole appropriations process. So at every step of the process, we do more breakdowns to show what's actually in the bills that Congress is putting forward. And um, yeah, so, so that's an analysis we do. We do a lot of analyses of trade-offs. So uh, just breaking down how much different programs in the military budget or in the federal budget get, like how many billions of dollars go to, say, nuclear weapons versus um, you know, housing or education or other things. Um, so we have a tool on our website called the Tradeoffs Tool where you can um, uh, look at different programs and see how, how that breaks down versus other things that could be funded, like how many for, for the cost of 10% of the military budget, how many uh, people could be funded as elementary school teachers, or how many clean energy jobs could be created, or how many people could get health care. Um, and those are talking points that we help distribute to organizations and people want to use them. Very quickly, we're going to get into the militarized budget, what that means. But I wanted to ask if in a very real way, the budget um, says what the priorities of whosoever budgeted is are, what the priorities are. And if you, you did mention um, the Trump administration a minute ago, I was wondering if you think back, well, maybe not from your personal experience, but from analysis to different um, administrations, I don't know if you want to divide them up, Republican, Democrat, or how much difference does it make for different categories? Yeah, that's a good question. So for the military budget, um, it, it actually, uh, th there are long-term trends in military spending. And in the past, I would say, uh, definitely in the past two decades, since 9-11 and 2001, there's pretty much just been an upward trend. Um, there was a big spike uh, at the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, at the end of the Bush administration and leading into the the first few years of the Obama administration, that there was a uh, pretty much all-time high spike, the highest military spending except for World War II adjusted for inflation. And where we are now is at a third spike, where it's not as high proportionally as it was at the height of, of um, that segment of the war on terror, but it still is very historically high. and. Um, Typically, the military, Pentagon spending has, has bipartisan support. It has just really strong support across both parties. There are dissenters among you know, progressives in the Democratic Party and some more libertarian types in the Republican Party. But overall, just majorities will vote for any, anything that the Pentagon wants or that the, that, that the lobbies behind the Pentagon war, uh, want. So there really hasn't been a, concert, a strong enough anti militarist movement to, to force bigger concessions that, that maybe is starting to change in recent years with more progressives in, in Congress or um, more outspoken critics of the, of the military budget. Um, 
But from year to year, uh, it really hasn't changed in a long time. And this was true even you know, back to the 80s when uh, National Priorities Project was founded. Um, and, uh, and yeah, IPS, the Institute for Policy Studies, was started in reaction to a democratic administration. So a lot of these interests uh, toward more militarism, more military intervention, more preparation for war really transcend the, the two-party system. Um, and as far as other priorities, like social spending, um, since 2011, there's been a bit of a compromise uh, 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 called the Budget Control Act that was started as a response to the 2008 financial crisis, where um, there was an, basically an agreement that um, increases in military spending and non-military spending would just track each other. So like uh, disproportionately more Republicans would continuously want more military funding, but not want more social spending. Democrats tended to broadly want more social spending, but not necessarily more military spending. So the compromise between both of those was just, they'll both keep increasing. And uh, you know the other side won't say much about the increases and in the things they don't want, as long as they get their increases. Um, so, so that actually exp is expiring this year after 10 years. So that potentially is an opening to reconfigure that, that tendency to just keep increasing both. Um, but uh, it's just an opening. It doesn't mean that uh, there's an organized force yet to, to force a reconsideration. Um, but that, that's broadly been the, dyna the dynamic, although there have been plenty of Democrats, certainly, who just also want more, more funding for the Pentagon. So let's move on to talk about what is this concept of the militarized budget? And maybe you start with some basics, like what fraction of the budget goes to the military? And, you know, is that really a one number answer? Or, you know, like... Yeah, so, so one of the main analyses NPP does every year is just putting out a pie chart of how much money it goes into the discretionary budget. Um, so the discretionary budget is what Congress allocates every year. There's also a separate category of mandatory spending that includes things that are just baked into the federal budget, things like Social Security, Medicare, um, just big pots of money that are outside of the congressional budget cycle. So the discretionary budget is um, right now it's somewhere between 1.3 and 1.4 trillion dollars, and a little more than half of that goes to the military. So the current military budget is $740 billion. So that's, uh, I think, 53%. Pretty consistently from year to year, it's 53 to 54%. That hasn't really changed for a few years. It's continued to go up, um, but uh, consistently the military is like a little more than half. So that's just to the military itself. Um, and we, do, uh, we started to do another analysis called the militarized budget that also includes segments of the domestic budget that are not part of the military, but are militarized. So things like Homeland Security, uh, immigration enforcement, prisons, um, uh, drug enforcement, uh, FBI spending, uh, stuff like that. So all those things that are outside of the military, uh, outside of the Department of Defense, but are different forms of uh, what we consider to be militarized spending. So if you count all that up, that's another 11% of the budget, which means the total militarized budget, according to our count, is almost two thirds of the discretionary budget. 
So the military itself is a little more than half, but if you count other forms of militarized spending, it's almost two thirds, which is just a huge amount of money. It's it's almost nine hundred billion dollars uh, going to uh, militarized, uh, you know, like like basically enforced violence. Um, and the reason we do this accounting is just to raise basic questions about uh, why why so much money is going to this, like immigration enforcement, for example is something that has really drastically increased just in the past two decades. Um, it started as a adjusted for inflation. It was about $2 billion in 1976 going to you know, border control and immigration enforcement. And that's ballooned um, to over $24 billion. And there was just a massive increase uh, throughout the 90s and, and 2000s. And um, it, it's... Yeah, there are just all sorts of dynamics behind that. But a uh, point we want to make is that, you know, the border was not notably more violent uh, <laughs> then. And, you know, it's it's possible to argue that it's not really like a threat in the way that it's presented now. Um, but the solutions presented to, to supposed problems like uh, immigration at the border, undocumented people crossing the border, it's always militarized solutions, not other kinds of solutions like, um, you know, more aid uh, to uh, the regions where people are leaving. Like, what are the causes driving uh, more undocumented immigration? Like, these questions just go unaddressed. And um, there are all sorts of answers, which ultimately do come down to U.S. foreign policy and trade policy that makes many parts of the world uh, dangerous to live in, which drives immigration. But anyway, there are all sorts of underlying dynamics of, uh, that lead to militarized responses um, and more militarization in the budget, but all these social questions go unaddressed. So we're at a point now where we have this massive militarization uh, within U.S. borders and outside of it, um, but we're just not able as a country to deal with like really urgent threats like a pandemic, for example, or you know economic crises where t tons of people are out of work or climate change. Um, yeah, so we want to call attention to how much is going to these things and what, what that goes to, uh, because lots of people just don't really have a sense of what the military budget actually funds. That was actually going to be my, my next question. In terms of this huge amount of money going to um, the military budget. You mentioned some specifics um, that you were included in militarized domestic use. In, in terms of the other, the 53, 54%, um, how does that divide up in terms of, wow, a lot of stuff, I guess? Yeah, so um, uh, it's really important right off the bat when we're talking about military spending to emphasize that the vast majority of it does not go to supporting the troops. <laughs> like uh, whenever anyone raises the prospect of cutting the military budget, the response is often like, oh, that's unpatriotic. You don't support the troops. You don't you know, want to make sure they're safe. And um, only about a fifth of the military budget is actually going to directly supporting the troops in terms of you know pay and benefits and things like that. Um, over half of it or roughly half of that uh so over 300 billion dollars is going to private contractors so that's weapons contractors like big companies like raytheon um boeing northrop grumman uh there are weapons manufacturers that uh get a lot of public money to produce weapons and, and this is just a basic incentive that to 
uh, keep increasing military spending because they're a very powerful lobby. Uh, they they spend tons of money uh, just directly lobbying members of Congress uh, to keep getting uh, funding um, in congressional districts all over the country. Uh, there, there, there are plenty of jobs uh, that are uh, funded uh, by that, but a lot of that is going to the heads of those companies, CEOs who get um, huge paychecks uh, from federal funds, uh, many times larger than uh, you know what the average worker of those companies makes, and many times larger than what the average soldier gets um, as a public employee in the military. So um, there's just a lot of inequality baked into that, where just uh, the people at the heads of these companies are just cashing in huge paychecks um, uh, and and very effectively lobbying for war. So a lot of the times when the U.S. is intervening intervening in a new country or you know setting up new bases or something, and you know it's it's very unclear to the public why that is the case. It's often just because it's profitable. Uh, there there are war profiteers who are just making lots of money from this. But but aside from that. Um, there is a massive presence of U.S. foreign military bases, which comes as a surprise to many people who don't know about this. The U.S. has over 800 foreign military bases overseas. Um, and the next country that has the most, I think, is Russia, which has something like 21. And China, which is presented as you know the big uh, adversary of the U.S. right now, has only one overseas military base in Africa. And the U.S. has something like 30 military bases in Africa alone. So there's just a huge disparity where the U.S. has over 800 overseas military bases, and many of them are in places like Germany or you know South Korea or Japan, where um, you know they're basically left over from World War II over seven years ago. So that's a ton of money. I think um, over 100 billion dollars just going to funding, uh, going to maintaining these these foreign military bases. I wanted to also ask you. In terms of these weapons that keep on getting produced, um, what happens to them? I mean, are they stockpiling somewhere? Are they sold to someone else? Um, do they get into the hands of dictatorships, um, terrorist organizations, or the, is someone? Are we? Is the U.S. busy using them? That's a great question. I I can't speak so much to to how or where those are all distributed. Like certainly the US does sell lots of weapons to you know regimes like Saudi Arabia, Israel. Um, yeah, plenty of governments that are pretty authoritarian. Um, so that is a big uh, part of US foreign spending and military spending. Um, a lot of these weapons are, are just stockpiled. Um, I think the US now has something like 4,000 uh, stockpiled nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons are, uh, you know, some like they they haven't been used in uh, in in wars for a long time. But the U.S. continues to stockpile nuclear weapons. Like there was a big movement in the '80s uh, or '70s through '80s against nuclear weapons uh, that was very popular. But since then, it's kind of subsided since the Cold War ended. But the U.S. like uh, has continued to just spend lots of money on maintaining them. It's something like. I think almost $25 billion goes to maintaining the existing nuclear weapons stockpile. And under President Obama, actually, there was a, a bipartisan uh, effort to increase funding on modernizing, like supposedly modernizing, uh, in air quotes, the nuclear weapons stockpile, um, which just means expanding them. Um, so 
yeah, uh, a, a nuclear weapons ban is something that's you know kind become kind of unfashionable to talk about, but I think it's pretty important to keep talking about because they have continued to proliferate, like more countries around the world keep gaining access to nuclear weapons, and that's in part because the U.S. is so unwilling to limit its own uh, development of them. So folks, if you've um, tuned in recently, I'd like to let you know our, our guest today on Undercurrents is Ashik Sadiq, who's a research analyst with the National Priorities Project, and also they're associated with the Institute for Policy Studies. Um, so this is a pretty, I'm, well, I'm not eco an economist, but it sounds like a really crazy model where you put so much of the country's resources into producing things that best case scenario is they're never used. Mm -hmm. so, let's um, segue into this concept then of trade-offs. What are we losing and what are options that could be done? And if you happen to have any examples where a transformation or transition or whatever retooling has happened, we would love to know about that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'll just with the first question, um, one of the basic kinds of trade-offs we do is just based on the numbers, like for 10% of the military budget, that's $74 billion this year out of $740 billion. That is um, like only 10% of, of the current military budget, but that's a huge amount of money for any other kind of priority. Like it's enough to end homelessness in the country, uh, to house every currently unhoused person in the country would be, uh, I think just a third of that. So for something, for, for probably less than $20 billion, you could house everybody who needs housing in the country. And um, you'd have plenty left over to spare. Uh, that's enough to uh, close the racial funding gap in public schools, uh, which I think is about $23 billion between majority white and majority non-white school districts. Um, it's enough pretty much to pay for free college uh, for all college students in the country. Um, it would fund enough renewable energy to power every household in the country, almost. Um, it would be enough to, uh, I think you could increase the number of elementary school teachers in the country by 50%, um, hiring almost a million new public school teachers. So there are just a, any number of social priorities that are currently underfunded that could be solved uh, you know, several times over with only a tenth of the military budget. And that tenth of the military budget would could would really barely be missed. Like there are all sorts of uh, things that we propose cutting from the military budget. But one of the things is just basic accounting. <laughs> well, the Pentagon has repeatedly failed audits uh, to just account for how it actually spends its money. And uh, there are a number of estimates of how much goes to just overhead, uh, like bad accounting. Um, and it's entirely plausible that uh, just properly accounting for what is allocated to the Pentagon um, could result in 10% or more in savings, uh, just because it's very unclear how, how that money currently gets spent. Um, and I think the second part of your question about, like, are there examples of, transitioning, of transitions happening? I think at the local level, there are some examples where, for, uh, you know, um, like a local military base in a town that depends on uh, you know, the military base for jobs or something. Like every few years, there's a process of uh, reviewing basis for closure. And these are often very controversial because um, there are plenty of towns or cities in the country where the military base is a, you know, significant uh, pillar of the local economy. 
So um, there, I think there are a few examples. Uh, I, I forget where, where a base closure, um, you know, the military base is repurposed for some other kind of, uh, you know, development or businesses or something. Um, there has been a lot of talk uh, lately about switching existing military industrial capacity, um, like weapons factories or something, to uh, like green purposes, uh, like plant. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if or where exactly this is happening uh, because like again there's just this huge lobby uh, for weapons where um, and not enough of a lobby yet for uh, the green industries um, but uh, what one of our colleagues Miriam Pemberton has written a lot about this and she actually has a new book coming out I think next year that looks into this question uh, to see where military industrial capacities is, is is being shifted to green purposes or like what the prospects are so um, yeah, it's a big question, but, but there was a big movement at the end of the Cold War, like in the early late 80s, early 90s, uh, for something called a peace dividend uh, that would try to, uh, you know, like now that the Cold War was over, um, uh, a major reason for the U.S. having such massive military capacity was because uh, there was this need uh, felt to fight the Soviet Union or be prepared to fight the Soviet Union. And after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, there was a, a pretty widespread sense that, oh, now we don't need this massive military and we can shift those resources to social spending. Like that's the peace dividend. Uh, so what'll, what are we going to use that for? And uh, that was pretty broadly popular. And there were plenty of um, labor unions that were for it, like machinists union um, that had that represented workers in uh, military industrial sectors. Um, they were seriously thinking about that. But that kind of fell by the wayside through the Clinton administration and then completely was sidelined uh, with, with Bush and the war on terror. But more and more, um, as you know, there's this very strong, increasingly strong need to deal with climate change. And um, you know, there's a big push for a Green New Deal. And um, President Biden has actually made pretty significant commitments to green infrastructure. Um, so that it has started to revive questions about like, oh, if we do a just transition for the fossil fuel sector um, and, you know, carbon intensive sectors of the economy, then maybe we can actually start thinking again about military industrial sectors. So that that's a big question. I don't <laughs> like there's a lot <laughs> to answer, but um, there is more interest now than, than there was a few years ago, at least. Well, that's um, thinking in the correct direction. So. We have about um, three minutes left, um, and maybe we can kind of continue on this thread, but also talk specifically about the militaries having this sprawling military bases, networks, um, the contribution of that to say, global warming pollutants. That I mean, we know that driving all of our cars is a big contributor. We know that heating all of our houses and other buildings is an even bigger contributor, I believe. How does um, this stack up with the military? Yeah, for sure. So I think in, in the climate movement and the environmental movement more broadly, there's been a pretty big shift in the past few years from focusing on individual responsibility, like uh, you know, fixating on your own personal carbon footprint and the need to reduce it, and drawing more attention to all the systemic ways that you know the entire infrastructure that most of us have to live in 
is based on fossil fuels. So, you know, it, it can be good to focus on your own uh, consumption and changes in your own habits to become more environmentally friendly, but that can really only go so far when uh, just our entire political system is reinforcing the, this, this heavily fossil fueled infrastructure that we all live in. Like we have to, the way we get to work, places we work, like how our homes are heated, our energy grid, those are all shaped by politics. So the only solution to it is collective change to, to, to reinvest in new infrastructure. And the military <clears throat> is an institution that, that like a basic purpose it has served for uh, many decades uh, is to reinforce the extractive economy globally. Uh, <clears throat> like it's, it's become almost a, a cliche that the US fights wars for oil but that's really been true. I think something like um, a quarter to one half of all interstate wars since uh, the 70s have been linked to oil and control of fossil fuel resources. And um, the Pentagon itself is a major polluter. Like uh, by by some analysis, the Pentagon is the, the single largest institutional consumer of petroleum. Um, and that's uh, like when there are national accounts of, you know, how how much each country emits in fossil fuels or greenhouse gas emissions, the military is conveniently left out of the U.S. accounting. <laughs> so um, according to one account um, that was done just in the past year or two uh, by our colleagues at the Cost of War Project at Brown University, um, they found that if the Pentagon, based on a conservative estimate of how much the Pentagon consumes in fossil fuels, um, it would, if it counted as its own nation, it would be something like a uh, the 55th largest consumer, so more than countries like uh, Denmark or Sweden or Portugal. So, so it's a massive consumer of fossil fuel itself, and it also serves the function of enforcing the fossil fuel economy and securing resources. So we can't talk about solving climate change without solving for the military's role in that. All right. And that's a very important point to think about. Um, and we're going to have to close up now. I'm sorry, I'm sure we could keep on going. Thank you very much, Ashik Sadiq, um, who works with the National Priorities Project. Um, you've been listening to Undercurrents here on WMUA 91.1. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.